0: The seaplane that brought me here just flew away. It left me in rain and fog by a lake, surrounded by spruce trees, in one of the most remote parts of Alaska, north of the Arctic Circle. I thought I was gonna feel like a little more I don't know, nervous or something to like see the planes take off and know we're here all by ourselves, but it actually just feels really cool. It's a beautiful feeling.
1: It does cause panic in some people though.
0: Hmm. Panic because that seaplane is our lifeline. For us, there's no other way in or out. There's not a single road. There's not even a hiking trail. It's very different from any of the national parks I've been to before. This is Gates of the Arctic National Park and Preserve, and it's eight and a half million acres of pure wild land. One thing I notice after only a few minutes is that my hearing has started to change. Instead of filtering out noise, I'm searching for sound. A bird call, the rain falling on the soft tundra. Somehow it's like the vastness actually makes it easier to notice the details. Right now, it's early September, also known as peak fall, and the foliage of the tundra is electric: deep purple, bright yellow, cranberry red, seafoam green.
1: And this on top here, this this lichen is called caribou moss. This white stuff—that's what the caribou really like.
0: This is John Gediky, a wilderness guide. He is also a major advocate for protecting this land from what. Well, I'll get into that soon. John looks like he could stand here all day. He has a thick yellow raincoat on, but he doesn't have the hood up. His shoulders are relaxed. He makes it look like this cold rain is a warm shower. John grew up in this landscape. He would spend part of his year in Fairbanks, about 200 miles away, so he could go to school and the rest of his time around here, helping his parents run a remote wilderness lodge, which they built from logs. Their home was on a lake right outside the national park. There were a couple other families a few miles away. Otherwise, the closest village had just 63 people and was nearly a week's hike over the tundra.
1: It's about 50 air miles, but. When you're going through the woods and dodging the rivers and moving around, it's, it's more like 80, sometimes 90 miles.
0: John knew this was a special kind of childhood.
1: It's, um, it's just not normal to have that much wild country around you.
0: He spent his days exploring, fishing, learning the sounds of this place. But at night, he had a recurring nightmare.
1: Yeah, and I still do.
0: John said that in this nightmare, he's standing at the lake where he grew up.
1: Down to the end of the lake, there's uh, really good grating fishing out the outlet because it's like gin clear and I'm just fishing.
0: John told me the dream has the same rules as the real world. You've got to be tuned into your surroundings. Up here, a stick snapping could mean a grizzly bear is nearby.
1: You try to put your head on a swivel because there's so much sound and and things going on. And the more you pay attention to it, the the safer you are.
0: In this nightmare, everything seems safe by the lake, John says. But then he turns his head.
1: Then all of a sudden, there's a city. And it would always be a huge amount of development.
0: The scary thing. The thing John says he can't shake when he wakes up.
1: And I'm like, how did I not hear them coming? And the thing that always scared me is that I didn't see it coming. Like, how did they sneak up on me? Especially when it would be like, you know, a city in this kind of crushing development. Like, I remember as a kid thinking that someday this will change somehow because it's just too good.
0: A stated mission of the national parks has always been to conserve nature. To put a velvet rope around special places. To shield them from the pressures of a modernizing world. But right from the start, as far back as Yosemite and the Mariposa Grove, that has proved difficult. Big forces outside the parks, sometimes right outside the parks, have inevitably shaped their fate. When Gates of the Arctic was established in 1980, it marked a radically different way of thinking about what a national park should be. Compared to the parks that came before it, this park is really hard for the public to access. It's truly undeveloped, and it's enormous. You could fit Yosemite, glacier, Everglades, white sands, plus Death Valley and the Grand Canyon, all inside gates of the Arctic. And you would still have room left over. But even here, in one of the most remote and the least visited of all the national parks the outside world is finding its way in. In this episode, we're going deep into one of the last truly wild places in America to explore the question, what should a national park be today? And what belongs inside it? I'm Lillian Cunningham with the Washington Post, and this is the season finale of Field Trip. gates of the arctic is all giant mountains and sprawling tundra with an uncounted number of lakes and rivers it's part of the brooks range which is an enormous chain of mountains running from alaska into canada the national park got its name from a description that wilderness advocate bob marshall gave in the early 1900s to two dramatic peaks They rise up, one on each side of the Koyakuk River, like these big gates. You cross through them, up the river, and you enter the deep North Arctic. I am. Before we pick back up with John inside the park, I want to explain what it takes to even get to Gates of the Arctic. All right. My name is
2: Ranger Indigo. So, welcome to Gates of the Arctic National Park.
0: We met park ranger Indigo Scott in a tiny village called Bettles, north of the Arctic Circle. It's really just a ranger station on an airstrip, surrounded by open tundra. This is the main launch pad for getting into the national park. Technically, you're not in it yet, but you're going to be. Which is still a good 20 miles away. Producer Bishop Sand and I already flew from Washington, D.C., to Minneapolis, Minneapolis to Fairbanks. Then we got on a puddle jumper to Bettles, And that was all before we got on the seaplane to fly into the park itself.
2: It is still important to have that awareness that we are in a remote place.
0: Because Gates of the Arctic is so remote and wild, the Park Service recommends you check in with them before you head out.
2: I'm gonna give a backcountry orientation with two purposes. The first half of this is about keeping you guys safe as you are out there in the park moving through this space. The second half of it is about keeping the park safe from you.
0: There are days Ranger Indigo doesn't give this presentation at all. Fewer than 10,000 people visited the park last year. Compare that to the nearly 13 million who visited the Great Smoky Mountains. I did the math and it means on an average day, there are only 27 people in this park. A park almost as big as the entire state of Maryland. That should give you a sense of just how unlikely it is that anyone could hear you call for help.
2: As you're traveling through bear country, try to stay together in a group. Human voices are still the best way to let the bears know that you're coming through the area. Packs of bears spray with you? Yes, okay. You want to aim arms length like out in front of you and down. Do you never want to run? That can trigger a predatory response from a bear. Moose are big and dumb. Moose decides it's charging you and moose is charging you.
0: We're keen to get these safety tips, but mostly we just want the park service to know we're going in, so they can do a search and rescue if we don't come out.
2: If you call for help, it's generally gonna be 24 to 72 hours before anybody comes to help
0: you. It's no wonder people refer to this as a black belt park. As in, you need a black belt in outdoorsmanship if you're going to come here.
2: It's not uncommon for your airplane pickup to be a day or two late. Hypothermia is a year-round concern here in Gates of the Arctic. Take a little more food than you expect to need. Thank you for
0: paying attention.
2: attention. Anything else
0: you guys want to know
2: before you head out?
0: I wanted to know whether what we had with us was enough. Because... This was the most intense trip I've ever packed for. I have several layers of clothing, a sleeping bag, a water filter, a sat phone, another kind of satellite messenger, a compass, maps, an emergency blanket, a first aid kit, solar chargers, waterproof matches, and like 40 granola bars, all crammed into one backpack. Oh, and yes, I have bear spray. Ranger Indigo said we needed a bear canister to keep our food in, too. She lent us one and said good luck. Which brings us up to where we left off with John. At the lake, deep inside the park. Shortly after we land in the park, John takes us out in a canoe. The lake is so thick with mist that we can't even see the mountains rising up behind it. I'm struck again by the utter quiet of this wilderness. All I can hear is the paddle moving through the water and the brush of my coat. We paddle across the length of the lake without speaking. It's a long time to be silent around two other people. We pass a loon calling into the fog. Our plan is to spend 10 days in and around the park. I want to talk with people like John who care deeply about the fate of this place and the threats it's facing. But I also want to experience up close what makes Gates of the Arctic so special. For the few people lucky enough to visit, the change in scenery, in sound, in perspective, it can stir something. John has seen visitors transform after being out here.
1: I've had people start writing poetry like I haven't written any poetry since college or, you know, start drawing or just their creativity just wakes up. And um, that little voice inside their head that's always talking about the things that they have to fight and and the, the things that are closing in on them, you know, generally goes away.
0: To be paddling on this lake, so far from the buzz of the world, it is really different from any other national park experience I've ever had. And that's by design. Here's the backstory. In 1968, a massive oil field was discovered and later developed in Prudhoe Bay in northern Alaska. That touched off a lot of debate about whether the rest of Alaska's resource-rich land should also be developed or whether it should be conserved. In 1978, President Jimmy Carter delivered his answer. He used his presidential powers to protect 56 million acres of Alaska from development. Then in 1980, just a few weeks before his term was up... He signed legislation that expanded those protections. It brought the total amount of conserved land to more than 100 million acres. More than a quarter of the entire state of Alaska.
3: The bill before me now, the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act, without doubt, is one of the most important pieces of conservation legislation ever passed in this nation.
0: This bill wasn't just important. It was one of the largest conservation efforts in American history. It turned vast swaths of Alaska into designated wilderness and created eight new national parks. The biggest was Wrangell St. Elias in southeastern Alaska. The second biggest was Gates of the Arctic.
3: By designating more than 97 million acres for new parks and refuges, we are doubling the size of our national park and wildlife refuge system.
0: In that one bill, Carter created more national parkland in the state of Alaska than there was in the rest of the United States combined.
3: I've been fortunate. I've seen firsthand some of the splendors of Alaska. But many Americans have not. Now, whenever they or their children or their grandchildren choose to visit Alaska, they'll have the opportunity to see much of its splendid beauty undiminished and its majesty untarnished.
0: In signing this bill, Carter had also offered a new answer to the question of what a national park should look like and what it should mean to protect land for the benefit of all Americans. — This wasn't about preserving special places for the enjoyment of the road-tripping public. This was about saving entire ecosystems and resetting America's relationship with nature.
3: As a nation, we have been blessed with an abundance of natural resources. We've also been blessed with an abundance of natural wonders, from the Grand Canyon to the gates of the Arctic, from the Everglades, the Yellowstone, we're only just now learning how to use the one without abusing the other. We must not let the pressures of the day interfere with these efforts to enhance the quality of our lives. We cannot let our eagerness for progress in energy and in technology outstrip our care for our land, for our water, and for air, and for the plants and animals that share all of these precious, vital resources with us.
0: Carter's decision gave this land to the American people. But for some people who made their living off the land, it felt like something had been taken away. People like John's dad. We start talking about it as night falls. John guides us back from the lake, up through the woods, to a small shack like the size of a shed. This is one of the few spots in the park where there's any trace of humans. It predates the park and was built by a family John knows. The floor looks like it's just a few sheets of plyboard, and there are still paw prints from the last time a bear broke in. We're wet and chilled, and it's pitch black in here. John starts a small fire in the old wood-burning stove.
1: That paraffin log just took off, so it's going to be super toasty in here. Start shedding some layers.
0: John tells me he remembers when Carter protected this land, because it upended his father's world. Up until then, his dad would take visitors, mostly very wealthy Europeans, out to hunt in the wilds of the Arctic
1: and yeah and our that was our our livelihood
0: but suddenly the land right outside their door became parkland it didn't allow development but more importantly for John's dad it didn't allow sport hunting
1: i remember being worried because of the the anger and animosity that was obviously in my dad towards the government
0: Starting in 1978, there were protests all over the state. This is archival tape of one in Anchorage. We
4: can't violate the law until legal, can we?
0: John told me he remembers his dad taking him to another protest.
1: This was downtown Fairbanks. In the main square, and I went to this big uh, rally. There were other kids too. I mean, that was full of sport hunters and guides and um, people that, you know, were just worried with what was going to happen with the federal government coming in and, in their mind, locking up so much land. And they took a doll and they hung President Carter by the neck and then dumped gasoline on his body and lit it on fire. Oh my and, gosh. Um, yeah, and I remember like that it was, it was cold enough that I was wearing, you know, Arctic gear, but then once they, you know, doused him with fire and lit him up, I remember like, oh, this is kind of warm.
0: <laughs> I found an old black-and-white photo of this protest. It shows the bonfire where they're burning Carter in effigy. Protesters are gathered close around it, holding signs that say things like, this is our country, not Carter country. And there in the corner of the photo, in a tiny parka, is John. He was three years old at the time, and he's staring up at the flames.
1: It was very, in retrospect, pretty strange. At the time, I was just like, yeah, why wouldn't you hang the president and light him on fire? Because he's, my dad's pissed at him. Like, this makes sense.
0: John's dad died when he was a teenager. His seaplane's engine gave out as it was lifting off from a lake. John eventually took over the lodge.
1: So yeah, for for the business, there was really no question that we would continue on. It's just been adjusting it to, to see what would work best for us and for the
0: land. He's a different kind of guide than his dad had been. He embraced the national park. Instead of bringing people out to hunt, John takes them into the wilderness. Just to see it and feel it. But like his dad, today John also finds himself upset about that Carter legislation, albeit for a very different reason. The bill that created Gates of the Arctic included a concession, a road. Mineral deposits had already been found west of the park, near the village of Ambler. And there were members of Congress who worried a national park would block all future access to them. So Congress and Carter struck a compromise. They made it harder to extract those minerals, but not impossible. If the day ever came when someone wanted to open up mines near Ambler and build a road through gates of the Arctic to get there, the bill said that the Park Service would have to allow the road. Now, that day might actually be here because mining companies are finally looking to tap those resources and want the road put in. This is John's nightmare. If built, the Ambler Road would run for more than 200 miles all the way across the south slope of the Brooks Range and it would cut through part of Gates of the Arctic and change this place forever.
1: This Ambler Road is a huge proposal. And then the mines that it would help to propagate are also huge. These are planet-altering mm-hmm. concepts.
0: So John has been fighting it because he doesn't want to see his nightmare come true. I want to be part of that little hammer that's just banging away all the time. He set up an organization called the Brooks Range Council to encourage people to fight against the road. And he spends a lot of his time going from remote village to remote village, attending public meetings. He even wrote an op-ed for The Post, calling on lawmakers to halt the development. Like, what's that worst-case scenario you want to prevent?
1: Oh, yeah. I I guess um, a worst-case scenario that I see is that the state spends a billion dollars to build a road— To a bunch of bankrupt mining companies that get about just far enough into the ground to release, you know, a bunch of toxic mine drainage and then they go bankrupt or move on to something else. And we have this you know, this big scar that just sits there and
0: Does it sort of feel like your like your dad's like (laughs) national park coming in is sort of like your ambler road
1: yeah absolutely and i heard grumblings from the the development companies that some of them that knew my father like oh you know your your dad would have kind of you know pushed back the same way or or had these kind of fights too and Mm -hmm. i think like that that to me sounds like a good thing if you are in love with the land that you're on and want to fight for it and um when you dig big holes in the planet and you put big industrial access to wild areas you're changing them forever
0: The road is not a done deal, for reasons we'll get into in a minute. But in allowing the possibility of the road, the decision-makers of the past left it up to this generation to weigh the trade-offs. And there are trade-offs. Because the Ambler Road might harm the wilderness, but the minerals it unlocks could also help us fight the biggest environmental threat of our time. Climate change. That's after the break.
3: If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it.
0: But on our reporting trip, I also went west to a mountaintop about 10 miles outside the national park. This is the very site where the first mine would go and where the road would lead. Are you gonna
5: help me out with the bat here. I got
0: Because this spot is so remote, our only way to get here was to ride on the mining company's plane and helicopter. We reimbursed them for those seats. So Now I'm standing at the very top of a kind of orange, rocky ridge. It's a sunny and perfectly clear fall day, rolling waves of mountains spread out in all directions. Glacial blue rivers loop back and forth below us.
6: So this is the top of the Arctic ridge?
0: That's Cal Craig. He's the environmental and permitting manager for Ambler Metals, the mining company that's been most actively pushing for the road. Like the road, the company is named after this district and the nearby village of Ambler. They've set up a small base camp here in the mountains so they can do exploratory drilling. Next to us is a small drilling platform, like the size of a cubicle, with a metal rod going deep into the earth.
6: And so what they're doing is they're drilling holes to understand what the different layers of rock are.
0: So what is it that they have found here?
6: So copper, lead, zinc, some silver, and some gold. In value, copper is the most valuable. Lots of industrial uses. I mean, think about your house has all copper wiring. Your car has you know, a significant amount of copper. Lead and zinc are common base metals used in all sorts of things.
0: Copper, in particular, is in high demand these days. It's necessary for a number of green technologies. For example, you need copper to build electric vehicles, solar panels, wind turbines. But it's also increasingly in short supply. A report from SMP Global projects that there will be major copper shortages beginning in 2025, and that countries will soon be scrambling for the metal, just like they did for oil in the last century. Ambler Metals estimates the site we're standing on has nearly 2 billion pounds of copper. That's a lot. But to put it in perspective, that same report projects the world will need more than 40 times that much per year by 2030. Is the dent that these metals would put in climate change worth the harm to the surrounding wilderness? That's the question swirling through my head as we look out from the mountaintop. Small rivers and waterfalls cascade down into the cradle of a lush valley. Cal points to it.
6: So you see that little saddle right there?
0: Yeah. Cal's boss sent him a picture of it to ask if he wanted to come work here.
6: So It's really a picture. that I took the job based on a picture. <laughs> the reason I came back 12 years. It's
1: a great place to work.
0: Cal's job is to figure out how to create as little environmental disturbance as possible from the mining efforts. This means monitoring birds, fish, insects, plants, all of which could be harmed if metals deep in the earth are extracted and leach into the water. He explains how the valley below us would be turned into a rock and water treatment area and how the mountain where we're standing would be sheared off to get to the ore. It's called an open pit mine. kind of would be like a a scallop-shaped pit. The company projects that the life of this mine would be 12 years if it becomes operational. By that point, there would potentially be other mines that would connect to that same access road. I asked Cal if he could understand the perspective of someone like John Gadeke, of not wanting to see this kind of industrial development here.
6: I definitely understand and have empathy for why people might not want that to happen. and I think it's just, you know, everyone, especially, you know, people in cities and whatnot, it's so easy to just think that all this stuff just sort of, like, exists. But it comes from somewhere. And, you know, there's different places it can come from. And this is one of those places that, you know, we could choose to have the benefits of mining. And I believe that you can balance that with, you know, the need to preserve wild places. And I just, I think there maybe is a perception that, you know, the second that you are here or developing, that it's like somehow like ruined, you know, never, never to be beautiful again. And I just... I just don't see it that way.
0: I asked a spokeswoman for Ambler Metals about this, too. She said the company has spent years designing plans here that would have the smallest environmental impact possible. She also noted that Alaska has some of the strictest regulations in the world around things like air and water quality, and that the company wouldn't begin construction unless it had secured all the money needed for the life of the project and the cleanup afterwards. All that said, whether these mines go in really boils down to whether the road goes in. Because the company has said, no road, no mines. They say it would be too difficult and expensive to transport the metals otherwise. And here's the thing about the road. Many people control its fate because it crosses through a lot of land more than 200 miles. There's land owned by the state of Alaska, which is in favor of this road and the jobs and other economic benefits it says mining here could bring. There's also land owned by the federal government. Officials can't say no to a road through gates of the Arctic. That's baked into the legislation. But they could say no to the road where it crosses other federal land. And that would effectively kill the entire project. The Biden administration is in a tough spot here. The mines could support the president's goals to reduce fossil fuel use and beef up domestic sources of critical minerals. However, Biden has also pledged to conserve nearly a third of U.S. land and water by 2030. That's why his administration stopped similar mining projects in Minnesota and Nevada. So what will happen here is still uncertain. The company, the state, and the federal government have spent years assessing the environmental impact that this road could have. But several groups have filed lawsuits alleging that these assessments weren't done properly or comprehensively enough. The state's position is that they were, and that the projects will meet every standard. But the Biden administration has temporarily halted the Ambler project for review. It's deciding whether to let the road go forward. I asked the Department of the Interior and the National Park Service what they would like to see happen, but because of the ongoing review and lawsuits, they didn't want to comment. There is one other landholder along the road's path that could tip the scales, though. Alaska Natives. And they, too, have been conflicted. Down at the mining camp...
4: It's kind of loud here. They got trucks outside, helicopters taking off.
0: (laughs) I'm sitting with a mine worker named Fred Sun. A helicopter lifts off, carrying staff and supplies up to the drill site. Fred's also the tribal council president of a nearby native village called Shungnak. A road around here could change village life dramatically.
4: I was actually against it, against the idea, you know, because I subsist a lot. I gather food a lot. My family does, and a lot of our—pretty much everybody does in our village.
0: Subsisting is not just about gathering food and hunting it speaks to a deep cultural reliance on the land. The proposed road would be a private industrial road to be used only by mining companies. But many believe that it could ultimately lead to more development and broader access to this remote area. At first, Fred was focused on some of the potential drawbacks.
4: No, I should. oh, no, we don't. A road here... Everybody's going to be able to drive in from Fairbanks and and hunt the caribou we we live off of, you know.
0: That fear of Fred's was ultimately outweighed by some of the benefits he can now envision. Benefits that might actually keep his village from disappearing entirely.
4: More than half of our, our tribal members don't even live in our village anymore. Um, because there's just so little opportunity there for employment, and the cost of living is so high. So, so right now we're paying close to $14 a gallon of gas, and we have to fly our fuel in, we have to fly our freight. Any kind of goods we receive at home, we, we have to fly them in.
0: This is part of why the state supports this project. The head of Alaska's development agency told me that it could help not just Shungnak, but other native villages that by providing jobs and revenue that could be used to pay for schools, water, sewers, and other basic needs, it could help keep the subsistence lifestyle from disappearing entirely.
4: The way the way we understand it, you know, things are changing anyways, and we don't want to get left behind. We don't hunt with dog teams anymore. It costs money to, to subsist, you know, and it's always going to be that way.
0: Fred's region has partnered with Ambler Metals on mining exploration. Some of it is taking place on Native land. If the mines are built, the Native people who live in the region could see a portion of any profits, in addition to the potential jobs and the lower cost of living that the road could bring. But some Alaska Natives who live farther from the mine and in a different region wouldn't profit as directly. That includes people who live just on the other side of gates of the Arctic, to the southeast. In the village of Evansville, for example, people really worry about the road's potential downsides. So that's where we're going next. Eagle Rock is near Evansville. It's a mossy piece of land that rises up next to the Coyacup River.
4: Oh, it's pretty out here. I love it. Too. Now be careful. It is a 200-foot drop.
0: A small rock falls off the edge. Mm.
3: That'd be you.
4: Just <laughs> <laughs> be careful. Now snow. I up here. You really get an idea of just how small and tiny you are.
0: Solomon Yatlin leans back and cups his hands around his mouth. Oh. 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 That's, that's it. a
4: moose. Yeah, that's a bull call. People have been coming here for ages. And it's a good spot to look out and see in all different directions. And I'm sure back in those days it was probably a little bit of hunting. I'm sure the caribou... There was a ton of caribou.
0: Eagle Rock is a significant cultural spot to Native people like Solomon, who lived down the river in Evansville. An early plan would have had the Ambler Road crossing the river right near here. Evansville pushed back against that plan. They're part of a lawsuit with a group of other Alaska Native tribes and villages who are concerned the road will harm both the environment and their culture including their hunting prospects. While the rest of the public lost hunting rights in what became the national park, including John's dad, Alaska natives were allowed to maintain those traditional rights. And like Fred's son, Solomon and his children go on subsistence caribou hunts.
4: Next summer, or next fall, I'm going to take my son. He's going to take his rifle. We're going to climb a mountain, mountains, and we're going to look. We're going to do some real real traditional stuff. Cuz those were great memories hunting up there, man. It was a lot of fun.
0: Wild caribou are another unique part of the park. They kind of look like reindeer. In the ice age, they migrated alongside mastodons and woolly mammoths and woolly rhinos. The others are all now extinct. Now Caribou are one of the last large mammals to migrate freely through North America. They travel hundreds of miles across the Alaskan tundra every year. Protecting them on an ecosystem level was one of Carter's reasons for establishing the national park. There are more than 160,000 caribou in the western Arctic herd. But those numbers are their lowest in decades— due in part to climate change and shifting vegetation patterns. There's some evidence that the road could affect their migration, and some fear that could hurt their numbers further. The park and others are still trying to figure this out. It's also a major concern for a lot of Native people, including Solomon.
4: And it's going to affect caribou, moose, Everything, all these animals that we hunt and look for every year and depend on, uh, you know, it puts meat in our freezer, it feeds us, you know, It just not only our stomachs but our souls, right down to who we are. I'm worried about what is going to happen for me and being able to hunt and whatnot and carry on tradition and whatnot. But I'm really, really worried for my children and my children's children. in a lot of ways, we have to be uh, these cultural, you know, forebears for, for a lot of generations. Um, otherwise, it's going to get lost.
0: Hearing Solomon talk about his fears for the future, I-, I can't help but think back to Irene Vasquez, Yosemite's cultural ecologist, and Rosalind Lapierre in Glacier, and the pain so many people still feel about decisions made hundreds of years ago that have rippled down through the generations. It makes me wonder how the decisions of today will feel a 100 years from now and what's really been learned from the past. For the last leg of our journey, we fly to Walker Lake, It's considered a crown jewel of gates of the Arctic. And if built, the Ambler Road would cut right by it. So I really wanna see it before we leave. It will take a couple hours of flying over parkland for us to get there. So Bishop and I are in another seaplane, talking over the headset with our pilot. How high up are we now? Like how far off the ground? Danielle Terrell. We are
5: um, probably about 1,200. feet above the ground right here. Whoa. All right, yeah, just a little turbulence because we have this little bit of a rain shower here. We're just going to skirt around it.
0: Danielle has a little dashboard hula dancer above the instrument panel, and it dances every time we hit turbulence. It's dancing a lot. Outside, I see lakes and ponds sprawling over the tundra. I feel like I heard someone describe before we got here that it was almost like a an arctic everglades, like right. a sort of shifting landscape of water, which I didn't really understand until... Until you see it from there.
5: I mean, over. look at, I mean, there's more lakes than you can count, right? I mean, it is definitely very much a wetlands.
0: 26 miles of the 200-plus-mile road would cut through gates of the Arctic. It would take a lot of infrastructure to build a road through this wild, undeveloped land. And the environmental impact would be significant. I read the Park Service's own analysis. It said the road would need turnout lanes, material sites, maintenance facilities. In just the stretch through gates of the Arctic, there would be five bridges and more than 500 culverts. Those are cutouts built under the road to let water flow through. The head of the State Development Agency said that this is, quote, not going to cause irreparable harm. But this is at the heart of the debate.
5: You can see how it's, you know, we've crossed just a lot of small little streams, all these tributaries.
0: Our flight is following the path the road would take
5: the road is going to have to cross over all of these watersheds and through this wetland, which is, uh, if you take away the impact, you know, impact to the wilderness, right, and you just talk about the financial uh, reasonability of this project, I look down and I go, this is ill-suited for a road.
0: Because it's everything from these, like, really wide rivers crossing over to, like, just little...
5: All those little, all those little tributaries. Oh, there's
0: a moose right there. You guys would like to go look at it.
5: And this little pond.
0: I look down and there it is. A moose standing all alone in the water with an expanse of golden tundra all around it. If a road were to cross this stretch of land the mining company estimates that trucks transporting ore and equipment would eventually make 168 round trips every day, bringing dust and noise and exhaust, as well as the potential for accidents and spills. I'm looking out the window at where the road would go. Danielle's looking out, too. She flies mostly by sight. She says that's actually safer than relying on her plane's instruments in a landscape with so many jagged peaks. Clouds drift in and start to obscure her view.
5: And unfortunately, it is not actually looking very nice in front of us. Yeah. Um, So, I don't know. We're gonna just keep on keeping on here for a little bit, just see if possible. It's just a little rain shower here.
0: My neck hurts a bit from peering nonstop out the window, just at the vastness of it all.
5: It just makes you feel small and insignificant. And that's not a bad thing in my mind, you know?
0: We turn and follow the wide Kobuk River north.
5: Flight 9, traffic, 5 liter or 6 kilo whiskey is just going to be landing at the outlet on Walker Lake
0: We reach the mouth of the lake and touch down. The cloud cover is low, but we're surrounded by what feels like a fortress of mountains rising up all around the lake. I start thinking about all the conversations I've had over the past 10 days. So many deeply human hopes and fears are tied up in the fate of this landscape. I think of John's fear that irreplaceable mountains and rivers will be destroyed. Of Fred's hope that change could happen in a way that helps his village. And I think back to something our other seaplane pilot said. We were flying over the park for the first time. I was at a loss for words. And I asked him how he would describe this place. He said, like, just try to imagine the most wild place you can, and you're probably still not there. I'm here, actually looking at it, and that still feels true. I can't quite wrap my head around the reality that this place exists. Danielle jumps out into the cold water and drags the seaplane onto the rocky shore by a rope. Bishop and I hop down onto the wet sand. We made it. <laughs> we, we we got ourselves to walk early.
2: It is stunning, even under fog.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: The fog is its own type of magic, right? Yeah. And the sort of changing like reveals in what you see, like all of a sudden the clouds lift and you get this mountain and then that closes in and then the fog lifts over there and you get like a peek at that mountaintop and then it closes in. Mm -hmm. This glacial lake is 12 miles long, so it's impossible to see the other side of it in this Shifting mist. In the 1960s, the U.S. government designated it a natural landmark of America. Being here, beside its clear, lapping waters, I can see why. We walk along the shore, stepping up onto the tundra a little. It squishes like a sponge. I mean, I don't know. I keep switching between wanting to, like, kind of look out across just kind of the vastness of land and water and mountains, and then wanting to, like, really zoom in. The ground is a mix of moss and lichen, mushrooms, Fallen red and gold leaves. Um, a lot of this moss is like almost like an electric white green sort of color. It really jumps out against the the purples and reds of the of the landscape. Um, and this is what the caribou mostly kind of track over the landscape um, and eat. Um, Let's touch it. I kneel down and run my fingers across the moss. It looks like coral, but it feels soft. This place is kind of when you boil it all down, like, this is what people are fighting about, right? Like, they're fighting about whether a place like this should remain what it is, which is (laughs) basically unvisited, undeveloped, too far for the noise of anything man-made to even carry its way here, right? Like, or... Is it okay for there to be a road that cuts through a couple miles from here that gives access to mining districts and villages and...
6: Do you feel that tension at all, like, in you right now?
0: Standing here?
6: Yeah. Like, coming from the East Coast, you know what it means to have, like, a road put in.
0: I mean, in some ways, like... I'm just being honest here like in some ways I can picture a road right because I'm so used to that I am so used to even in a beautiful place that I go to I am used to there being a road near it that I probably drove to get to that beautiful place I was standing right so so it's a thing I can fathom I can fathom standing at this lake and hiking off a little bit and reaching a parking lot or reaching a trailhead or reaching a road reaching a bridge like I can fathom it it's the world I grew up in so I can picture that but do I want to picture that? (laughs) We each have to answer that question for ourselves. But we also have to answer that question collectively. As of the summer of 2023, the future of the Ambler Road is still in limbo. But this isn't just a story about whether this road goes in or not. What's playing out in Gates of the Arctic is a question we're going to increasingly face as a human race. As we develop more and more of the planet and need more and more from it, our efforts to both protect wilderness and extract everything we need from it are increasingly at odds. Those decisions will shape the future of the national parks, but also the future, period. Just throwing little pebbles into the water. Um, (laughs) it's not good to like ultimately be like, well, we have a lot of tape of Lily almost crying in places. Lily Cries the National Parks. Um, Were you close but to crying? I mean, I feel that way a little bit. Yeah. Why? I think because... Like, I don't think I'm ever going to be here again. I think I'm probably not even going to be close to ever being here again and um I feel really really lucky Field Trip was reported and produced by me, Lillian Cunningham, Bishop Sand, and Emma Talkoff. It was edited by Robin Amer and Theo Balcom. Additional editing by Renita Jablonski, Juliet Eilperin, Dana Hedgepeth, Krissa Thompson, and Courtney Kahn, who's also our project's editor. Copy editing by Mike Cirelli. Our fact-checkers for this episode were Nicole Pasulka, Kitty Samuels, and Bishop Sand. Sound design and mixing by Jim Briggs. Additional production support from Sam Baer. This series includes original music by Decoded Forests and Bishop Sand. Our credits theme is by Ilani Music. Field Trips Show Art is by Cody Huertas. Art direction and editing by Christine A. Matthew Callahan, and Greg Manifold. Archival tape for this episode, courtesy of the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library and the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Over the course of working on this series, we've had help and support from so many people across the Washington Post newsroom. I'd like to give them a shout-out. Here we go. Stephen Bonner, Brandon Carter, Sarah Dunton, Amanda Finnegan, Emma Grazado, Stephanie Hayes, Michelle Giaconi, Olivier Laurent, Stuart Leavenworth, Jordan Melendrez, Angel Mendoza, Allison Michaels, Laura Maholsky, Also, Gwen Milder, Sarah Murray, Amy Nakamura, Emily Nieves, Alexandra Pannoni, Sarah Pineda, Timothy Puko, Emily Sabins, Kylie Schultz, Arjun Singh, Cassie Smith, Stephen Smith, Erica Snow, Savannah Stevens, Ed Theedy, Amanda Voissard, Rashawn Walters, Nina Zafar, Jamie Sega and the Post Reports team. We have incredible photos for this series by my colleagues Bonnie Jo Mount and Matt McLean, which you can see on our website washingtonpost.com/travel. In making this show, it was so important to me to bring you inside all of these parks and to bring you along on my reporting journey. And that work would not have been possible without the support of Washington Post subscribers. If you're not yet a subscriber, you can unlock a special deal as a listener to this series. Your first four weeks are free when you sign up at WashingtonPost.com slash Parks Podcast.